Hello and welcome. You're listening to Planet Bio. This is our weekly startup office hours, where we discuss all things at the intersection of digital and biology. Before we get started, a brief disclaimer. Planet Bio is not affiliated with any institution or organization. Views belong to those who express them. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Hello, Emily. It is a pleasure to meet you today. If you can take a moment, uh, please introduce yourself to our listeners. It's great to be here, and thanks so much for the invitation. You know, I'm an immunologist by training, a hardcore immunologist by training, or card-carrying immunologist. And I am currently working um, in the immuno-oncology space, where I'm working on new target identification, validation efforts, new pathways, new platforms that we can leverage to really make some movement and uh, lift some heavy rock in immuno-oncology and oncology therapeutics. The other hat that I am currently wearing in my role is I sit as the scientific lead for the academic alliances that my company has to really um, find opportunities to do target identification, new discovery, new pathways, uh, anything very innovative and potentially high risk. And I think Doing that has a huge advantage uh, in in a larger pharmaceutical setting. And so those are the two hats that I wear, but it's really centered on uh, finding new paths ahead. It would be really great to kind of pull at the thread of the the second narrative of yours of like these academic alliances. And, you know, looking at your background, you got a PhD. You know, what inspired you to be like, yeah, you know, I really want to spend a few more years at the bench. What questions yeah, were there? Actually, I have a, a little bit of an untraditional path in terms of my career. So I, you know, like many people, I after high school, I went and I did my bachelor's. I had a bachelor's of science in microbiology, but I worked in an immunology lab. And then I I knew I wanted to expand my education. Um, and it wasn't quite ready to work yet. So I actually stayed on at the university, they had a master's program, and I stayed on for another year and a half. And it was a completely lab based master's in an immunology lab, working on a translational project, uh, developing a model for a disease called aplastic anemia, which is an autoimmune disease. And then after I graduated um, with my master's, I went and I worked at a biotech company called Genzyme. And I worked there for about four and a half years. And a few years into that role, I decided that, you know, I really want to uh, have more critical thinking skills and I want to be able to contribute more and help steer decisions. And so at that point, I applied um, to a number of different PhD programs and, and actually many people said, why would you leave such a great career and go back to school? Um But I knew that I wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn how to think more strategically, more critically. And and so uh, I was accepted to the immunology program at the University of Pennsylvania. And I left my job, uh, contrary to what many people thought was a good idea. And I had a fantastic experience for six years at Penn. I loved it. Um, And I left. I went right back to industry. I did an industry postdoc at Sanofi in their oncology group. And after about a year and a half there, I transitioned to a role um, at Takeda Oncology, where where I am working now. 
That's great. And then I, I guess to kind of like expand a bit on your academic role before we get a bit more into the oncology, uh, you know, what a, after like your postdoc with Sanofi, after coming here to Takeda, what brought you back into academic alliances? And like, mm -hmm. what's unique there that sometimes people forget when they come from like other external innovation focused roles or from other sorts of roles where they're focused more on like broader business development? Yeah. Yeah, that that is a really great question and a, an important distinction between sort of the business development opportunities and academic alliances. I think that I was just lucky to have early exposure um, to academic partnerships. Even when I was at Sanofi, I was involved in some academic partnerships. And then I continued on with that, had the opportunity, right? So that's so that's just luck, right? Having the opportunity to do that and then really enjoying it and leaning into it. And I think the value there is that there's sort of this mindset that we're able to fail here, right? Whereas in terms of a, a business development uh, transaction or partnership or collaboration or in licensing, we don't do those um, that are high risk. Those are given good diligence and they're selected based on a high probability of success. The academic alliances are really an opportunity to see what's emerging, what's cutting edge, what's going to come down the road in five, six, seven years. So for me, as a, as a immunologist who's really interested in what's emerging in academic labs. I just fell in love with it. And I think you have to separate your mind a little bit from uh, the opportunity and realize that it is high risk, but it has the opportunity for high reward. So maintaining diligence, trying to steer things when they may not work out. So how can we get our best return on investment there? So that's the business side of things, but also um, seeing the long-term potential instead of more of the immediate potential. But it is a high risk space. It's more cutting edge and there's many learnings that you can get from it. So it's interesting that you talk about risk because when you think of like a pharmaceutical pipeline from target identification to market entry of drug, really it's a pipeline of decreasing uh, risk all throughout this sort of process. And at the earliest stage of, you know, high risk profile is kind of target identification. Um, how how do you like, like, how do you kind of go through this process of so many new people are coming up with so many new ideas of, you know, these are potential exciting new targets that we haven't looked at or are now possible to be drugged because of new innovations. And if someone spent all their time just focused on that, they will probably go insane trying to suck in the knowledge of the world. So mm -hmm. how, what sort of like good trends have emerged right now to help kind of like cut through all that noise and which kind of open questions are still out there for you? That's like, man, it would be really great if we had this sort of tool to help at least de-risk the earliest mm -hmm. front end. I think that you're onto a really great point with the opportunity to generate massive data sets now, right? We have so many technologies that generate massive data sets and then we can sort through them. We can compare groups, whether it's uh, in in vivo models, in vitro systems, or even from patient data. 
we have the opportunity to come up with a, a very vast number of potential drug targets, right? And now we have all these tools for intractable targets. We have new technologies or modalities for, for delivery. I think it's very important that a scientist and his or her team really align on the strategy of the group. What is it that you're trying to go after? What biology are you trying to go after? Are you seeking a particular modality to go after? Is that what's going to make your company or your work or your lab different from someone else's? And if you can refine your strategy well enough, that's going to help you really funnel the number of targets that, that you're going to work on. You know, the next step is to figure out how to quickly filter through, say you have you know, a thousand targets and you filter it down to a hundred and then you filter it down to 25 and then you filter it down to 10, you know, going from your strategy, modality, uh, maybe disease area, right? So you're just continuing to narrow that down. How do you very quickly decide on your, your lead two or three? How do you, how do you decide which ones to invest in? That's also another really important thing. And I think coming up with some key critical experiments or key translational data sets that help you figure out which two you're going to invest in. And it's always a risk, right? Um, none of it's a sure bet. But I think coming up with a selection criteria, having a really strong uh, strategy and then sticking to it, that will help you. Um, as you funnel this down, because you have a lot of material to work from. Now we have so many big, huge data sets. So that that that's one idea. I'm sure there's many ways to do it. Certainly. And we're getting down to about the last three questions. And I guess the follow-up question from there is, what sort of tools are on the near-term horizon that you think, or what sort of resources are needed to help improve this process for you and your own peers in how to get this work kind of less boiling the ocean, so to say, of taking mm -hmm. down thousands of targets and figuring out what are this, the right sort of strategic process of filtering versus is it quality of data? Is it the type of experimental tools that we have access to? Is it access to the right sort of populations? Is it more uh, structural understanding of things? Like what are the like near-term big questions mm -hmm. you're excited for answers to soon? Yeah, that that's also a really important thing to discuss. I think more than ever, we need very good translational data sets that are highly annotated. We have many in vivo models for many disease areas, right? Um, certainly my job is centered on oncology. And we're learning over time that many of the models that we have used in the past and certainly have provided us uh, a path to success for many therapeutics in oncology, um, those models have very fundamental differences from what patient tumors look like and patient bodies look like from head to toe, um, not just the tumor space, but the immune repertoire, right? It's very different in a person who's lived in the world, been exposed to all you know, many different colds and flus and infections in his or her life and vaccinations versus a mouse who's never left a lab that's pretty clean. Really getting improved models. Uh, and if we, if we 
can or can't do that, at a minimum in parallel, we need to be continuing to uh, profile patient tumors, patient immune systems in the circulation, and having that well annotated so that we can really understand what are the mechanisms that are lost or gained uh, to go after. So that's that's one idea about a tool. So modeling, um, as well as having superior translational patient data sets to help us with our translational profiling, which helps us to de-risk, I think actually helps us to de-risk. To, to make sure that I'm actually getting this right is it sounds like, you know, while we're having this great, uh, you know, wave of data coming in every day, it's not really a large cross-section on one individual data point. Sometimes it's a lot of little different profiles of many different things, and therefore there's not really enough information. And we have to kind of interpolate and guess what's there. And it makes it hard really to make uh, correct decisions because sometimes you're going off of something that has to be simulated up. Um, so that's definitely an excitement to see, hey, can we get much better data? Can we get more uh, clarity from the uh, translational data, as you said? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so I guess the the two kind of like broader impact questions and one from the audience here actually is interesting of like, you know, the tools that you work at to identify, you know, academic collaborations and alliances, perhaps, are those same tools partially accessible for people who might be interested to join an academic lab as a student or as a researcher? And if so, why should they consider that? And by tools, do you mean um, tools for identifying labs that are potential partners I, for us or tools that we could implement in an alliance or partnership? That's, a, that's very clear. Um, I think I would probably take it at like a more uh, bigger abstract level of just like, hey, you know, how do you go about identifying labs? Like, is there yeah. certain like data sets that you look at, like NIH grant sure. rates, you look at citations? How do you make it out as like, this is a strong candidate that we should at least learn more from? Mm -hmm. And are those same labs, the same sorts of labs a new student should enter? Mm -hmm. Or sometimes are they kind of like contradictory and sometimes one environment is not necessarily the best environment to learn in? Yeah. Okay. That, that totally makes sense. So I think the first part of the question is how do we identify? What, do we, what tools do we use to identify labs that have, um, uh, you know, the research that we're interested in or the tools or the screening methods? Um, we use all of the above. We go to conferences. We see presentations, we interact with PIs, postdocs, graduate students, undergraduates that are presenting. We look through um, grant trackers, through NIH, NCI, you name it. Um, we have historic partnerships that we try to maintain. It's of course easier to maintain partnerships with institutions that are closer to us. So that's another attractive piece. Can we go over and meet people in person? There's no substitution for in-person meeting, right? We have sometimes put out calls for proposals. We've gone to a number of institutions throughout the country and put out a request for proposals. And so we've 
use that as a strategy to be unbiased. Of course, we have the scope of what we're looking to um, invest in or to to fund um, in a particular strategic area. Again, we're still focusing on that strategy and um, we use those as methods. Of course, if you're reading a really wonderful article and, and a PI uh, at University XYZ has has identified a screening tool or uh, an in vitro platform for discovery in infectious disease that we think may be relevant in oncology, we'll reach out to, to that professor directly and set up an opportunity to meet with him or her and learn more about their work. So it's really a number of different avenues that we use. Now, thinking about whether or not a lab is a good fit for a student, um, in fact, I had a mentee that I've been mentoring for a number of years who just started a PhD program in immunology, and she's selecting her first uh, rotation labs, right? Is it so much anxiety? How do you how do you select them? Because this is your future. I think those are those are maybe a little bit distinct from an industrial academic alliance. You know, I think it's really about, as a student, it's really about finding a mentor who's going to spend the time with you. Sometimes these really big labs that are pushing out a lot of science and nature papers and cell papers, right? Those PIs are not around. You have to book out four months to get them on your calendar. So maybe that's not the, the right setup for a student who's looking for more close mentoring from the PI. You may have a, a more senior student who's much more independent and happy to work with a postdoc who is a fantastic mentor, and, and that situation may work. In terms of cutting-edge work and technologies, yeah, I think it is important to keep in mind labs where there's innovative, you know, modern technology, right? Um, no more northern blots and southern blots and making your own SDS page gels, right? That's that's uh, old school, right? So that could potentially align with some of what we look for in alliances, but perhaps it's a little bit distinct. Certainly depends on the personality of the student, what they're looking for. Certainly. And with that, we've reached our close. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Uh, we're excited to kind of see uh, the new work uh, that everyone is hoping to do to kind of solve the problems of the fuzziness of risk. And with that, I hope you have a great day. Thanks so much. It was a privilege to join you.